If you would, I'd ask you to open in your uh, Bibles to Ephesians as we continue on in the Word of God, in the letter of Paul to the churches in Ephesus. And today we're going to be going through Ephesians, specifically chapter 6 and verses 1 through 4. You'll probably remember that Paul has been addressing for a little while the, the uh, familial relationships within the church. Specifically, he's been addressing the hierarchical relationships in the church. He started out with the command, of course, to submit to one another in the fear of God within those structures that God has given. We talked about one of the most important structures, of course, that God has given, which is the, the family. Uh, he, in the garden and creation, he gave that relationship, that one flesh relationship between husbands and wives that Paul spoke of in chapter 5, and now he turns to the rest of the members of the household. He's going to, uh, he's going to talk about children and fathers, and also he's going to talk about masters and servants and their various relationships to one another. But before we uh, talk about the importance of those relationships and the commands that uh, Paul clearly gives to both children and parents, let's go before the Lord and ask for his help. God, our Father, I thank you so much that you've given us your word. It is our light. It is our lamp. And Lord, we need it. In this world, we need to know what to believe, and we need to know what to do. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us this day to absorb these things. We know, Lord, that whenever your word is being preached, the devil is beside us to try to stir us up against it, O oh Lord, to uh, condemn it in our hearts, or simply to ignore it, to allow the seed to fall on hardened stony ground so that the birds will come and pluck it away before it can produce any sort of harvest. But we pray, Lord, that you wouldn't let that happen. May it be that your seed would find good soil in our hearts and that it would produce that harvest of obedience that you're looking for. Help us, O oh Lord, to hear with ears uh, that are open and to see with eyes that are not closed, Lord, the glories of your word. Let us read and let us learn. And we pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Ephesians chapter 6 and verses 1 through 4. I remind you, this is the word of the Lord. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. And you, fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Well, as I said, Paul has been talking about the structures, the, the hierarchies found within the church. And having talked about the relationship between husbands and wives, he now goes on to the other members of the household, and he starts with children. Now, one of the things that you should notice immediately as he is addressing children is that he is addressing children. He does not say, parents, tell your children to obey you when you get home. What he actually is therefore expecting is that you, children, would be present in the worship of the Lord. Uh, I know that many churches have children's churches uh, in the, the uh, we didn't go to church very often when I was a child, uh, but in the congregational church that sometimes my parents would, would go to, uh, especially on religious occasions, uh, they would have a kid's sermon, uh, which was usually uh, light and fluffy, and then the kids would be dismissed, and then the adults would get the adult sermon. Um, but that didn't happen in the first century church. That's entirely a 20th century development. 
what happened in the first century church was that families worshiped together. All the members of the household would come and worship, and that continued on within Christianity. The objective was to have worshiping households, all the members. That would include uh, slaves and servants would be coming with their household to the worship, and they would be hearing these words addressing them. So Paul is speaking, and he is speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to children and fathers directly. He is addressing it to you. And he starts out with this command. He starts out by saying, obey your parents. And note the word, and I'm not going to lighten this, but note the word that he uses there is obey. And it is stronger than the previous expression that he had used when he was talking about the relationship between husbands and wives. There, what had he asked the wives to do regarding their husbands? He'd asked them to Submit. Submit is a, it's a softer word than obey. Submission is the willing submission, uh, willing subjection. I shouldn't use uh, <laughs> the same word in its own definition. That's a terrible thing. Uh, submission is the willing subjection of someone uh, who is, to a greater or a lesser degree, a peer to one who has the right to command in a particular circumstance. So it's a saying, um, okay, it's, it's your calling here to submit within the household, uh, not saying that this person is inherently better than you are, but rather that you are called to submit. Um, just an example that immediately comes to mind. Uh, some of you may be aware of uh, a battle called Rourke's Drift. It occurred in the 19th century in South Africa. The Zulus attacked a small outpost. They'd already wiped out a major British column at Islanwana and they had moved on to a mission station called Rourke's Drift, and there was an army contingent there, mostly Welsh, uh, and there were two officers, an engineer who was building a bridge, and then uh, a captain of the infantry. And immediately the question came when they came under attack, who would be in charge overall of the station? These men were both peers. They had the same rank, but they decided by the means of who was commissioned first, who had seniority in that particular station, because they understood you couldn't have two leaders in an emergency like that. And so too, obviously, in the household, you can't have two leaders. You have to have an overall head in any hierarchy, and that is the one that God has created for us. But children are called upon to be obedient. Obedience is implicit. We obey without questioning. Now, when I say it's implicit, there is a trust that children should have in their parents, and that trust should be well-grounded. Parents should not be instructing their children to do things that go against the will of God. As we will see, our primary, and this is in all command structures, our primary allegiance is to God. We must submit to his commands. And when a lesser authority than God gives us a command that goes against his commandments, what is our duty? We have to say at that point, no. So, for instance, the famous example of that occurs in Acts chapter 5, where the Sanhedrin commands the apostles not to preach the word of God, not to preach in the name of Jesus any longer. And while the Sanhedrin was the civil authority that was over those apostles, they say at that point, no, we ought to obey God rather than man. We're obeying an authority that transcends yours. So, children, obey your parents is something that you should listen, you should hear, you should do, unless that command goes against the commandments of God, clearly. 
But hopefully, God willing, God hasn't given you parents who are constantly commanding you to do things that go against the commandments of God. They don't send you out in the morning like uh, the artful dodger and Oliver to pick pockets or things like that. If they did, you should say, no, I can't do that, mommy. That's wrong. I shouldn't pick people's pockets and so on. Or whatever the commandment is that goes against uh, the commandments of God. Now, he note this. Paul points out that, the, that this obedience is right, okay? Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. What is he saying? He's saying that even by natural law, this is something you should be doing. You should be rendering your obedience to the very people who gave you life, who brought you into the world, and who have provided for you. This is a reasonable service, just in the, in the way that the world is structured. The very universe tells you that you should be obeying these people. But he goes on to add to that the authority of God's special revelation. He doesn't simply say, obey your parents because that's the way the universe is structured. He says, this is something that God has revealed to us in his word as well. He goes on to quote the fifth commandment. You'll find that in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. He says to them, this obedience that you owe to your parents, children, is actually part of the moral law. The command to obey your parents, to honor your father and your mother, is actually something that was written by the finger of God. This is as explicit as it possibly could be. But he then adds the promise. He says, not only is this a commandment of God, not only is it part of the structure of the universe, but he says also... If you do it, it will result in good things. God has given a promise to you. He is, now, the promise has two sides. If you disobey this commandment, it won't go well for you. But if you obey this commandment, it will go well for you. But note that promise, the carrot, so to speak, is an incidental promise. It is a secondary motive to do what's right. Why should you do what's right? Why should you obey your parents? Because I say so. No, that's not the reason. I just wanted to see if anybody's you know, following me here. It is because it's God's will. The reason you're supposed to obey your parents is because it's God's will that you would do so. It ultimately comes down to him. But he emphasizes that there is this promise nonetheless. Obey that you may live long. Now, that was originally given, obviously, to the Jews as they were living long in the land that the Lord their God was giving them in Canaan. But Paul says, no, this is, one of, this is part of the moral law. This is something that reflects the goodness of God. This is part of his will for us in every time, every place, every age. And therefore, this is a promise that is always good. It is always fulfilled either literally or through a higher blessing, a spiritual and eternal blessing. And it is something that you see. You don't, it is the case that this is a promise that is often fulfilled. The children who tend to do worst in this world to this very day are the ones who disobey the righteous and lawful commands of their parents. And the kids who do the best tend to be the ones who are obedient. Do you want to have long life and prosperity? Then obey the good commands of your parents. Listen to them. Like all of these other promises, of course, it's, it's not absolute. It may be the case that an obedient child dies in their youth and so on. That, that sometimes happens, but it is usually the case 
that your obedience will result in long life and prosperity, whereas the opposite, if you are a disobedient or rebellious child, it will not go well for you. But, of course, it's not just children to parents that Paul is speaking to in talking about their responsibility. He's also talking about parents and their responsibility. Uh, And note who he addresses when he's talking about the responsibility here for the raising up of these children, for putting them in the right direction. Today, uh, we might think that the primary responsibility for the nurture, the guidance of children falls upon, I mean, if we were to listen to the modern media, it falls upon the government. All right, the government is responsible for the instruction, the nurture, the admonition of children, and that's absolutely not the case. As we read the Bible, we see that there is a sphere sovereignty issue. The government is not to raise your kids. Neither is the church. It's not my responsibility, for instance, believe it or not. I, have to pre- I do have to preach the gospel. I do have to exposit the word. I do have to do all that I can to edify, to encourage, to build up, and so on. But the Christian nurture and instruction of your children is not my responsibility. It is the responsibility who, of who, Paul says, not teachers, not mothers, but fathers. Fathers are supposed to be the primary exemplars of godliness within a household. They're supposed to be the primary teachers, the primary pastors, the the primary priests, if we can put it that way, at the family altar for their kids. They're the ones who are supposed to be teaching the word. It's not the government. It's not moms. It's dad. But, of course, the fathers get that authority from God. The authority that they have is given to them. And the authority that they have is to raise them up in the nurture and admonition of who? The Lord. And so therefore, whose instructions are they supposed to be giving to their children? The Lord's. So we have fathers. They are told to raise up their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. But there's also this call to godly restraint Fathers are given instructions about how they're supposed to nurture and admonish their, their children. Because fathers can be tend, you know, we can tend to, uh, towards passion. We can become, shall we say, overly passionate. Or we can, I, I love the old word, vex. We can vex our children greatly. We can uh, cause them to uh, have rebellion stirred up within them simply by the way that we go about commanding them. The way that we go about leading within our household. And, and so we need to hear the instruction uh, that we are given here from Charles Hodge. They're not to excite the bad passions of their children by severity, injustice, partiality, or unreasonable exercise of authority. A parent had better sow tares in a field from which he expects to derive food for himself and family than by his own ill conduct nurture evil in the heart of his child. Instead, we are to nurture them. We are to discipline them discipling and chastening according to the Lord's instructions, and we are to admonish them. We are to train them up. We are to give them the words of encouragement and instruction and reproof and remonstrance according to the circumstances that they are in on a daily basis, and we are to take that instruction from where? Where are we supposed to glean it? The Bible, thank you. This is not, you know, that wasn't a hard one. I'll I'll hit you with a hard one later on, so stay awake. It's coming. And so this instruction is 
the instruction, the nurture and admonition of the Lord as the Lord approves, as the Lord instructs. And why should the child listen to it? Because it's coming down from God. The only reason that you should listen to me is not because I'm a great authority or, you know, that my opinions are better and so on. They are, but um, the, I'm just kidding. Um, but that's not why you should listen. The only time that you should listen is when my, my teaching is in accord with God's word and his instructions. That is where the authority comes from. My authority is strictly ministerial, strictly an ambassador of Christ. I'm not a legislator. I am not a ruler. I act on behalf of a king. I give you the instructions that God has given for me to deliver to you in his word. And so too, fathers, what are the instructions you should be giving to your family? The instructions that God gives to fathers in his word. But in order for you to do that, it implies that you will, and here's the harder one, you'll have to read the word. There you go. You've got to know what God's instructions are. Otherwise, you will have nothing to give to them. I use this illustration again and again. It's horrible, but I'm going to keep using it. I haven't been instructed by this session not to use this particular illustration. It'll come eventually. But, all right, so you know the wonderful penguin thing narrated by, by uh, Morgan Freeman, the, the, the stories of the, the penguins. Okay, so we know how the, the mother incubates the egg, but during the time that she's incubating the egg, making sure it doesn't freeze solid by putting it on her feet and then basically squatting on it on the ice, she can't do what? Eat. Okay, so by the time the egg is about to hatch, the little penguin, uh, or rather the penguin mommy, is almost starving. She has to then, as soon as the egg hatches, she has to hand over the new penguin to who? Dad. And then dad feeds the young penguin by regurgitating the food that he's already taken in. It's a horrible image, but here, hear me out. <laughs> Brothers, we feed our families from the word of God by regurgitating, by rehearsing, by saying what we've already taken in. We cannot give them instruction that we don't already have. It's got to be something that we have, we've, uh, I was about to say masticated, but that, um, it's a word that, we've chewed. We've chewed on ourselves. It is something that we have worked on. We've digested it. We've gotten it into our system. And then we give it out to the people whom God has given to us. That is our responsibility. That's training up children in the nurture and application of the Lord. Let me give you some applications here. I've already given some, but I want to talk again, switch my, my fire to the, the children once again. The obedience that you're being asked to do is hard. John Calvin even said so. He wrote this. It is likewise more difficult for the human mind recoils from the idea of subjection and with difficulty allows itself to be placed under the control of another. Experience shows how rare this virtue is for we do find, uh, for do we find among a thousand one that is obedient to his parents. Uh, that full obedience, that willing obedience, that yes father, yes mother from the heart is very uncommon. Why is it so uncommon? Because of our natural pride. Because of our nature, unfortunately. Proverbs 16, 18 says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Better to be of a humble spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the, pride, uh, with the proud. But, unfortunately, it is the founding 
sin, the most common, the one that has led to the most destruction, the pride of our own hearts. C.S. Lewis, I've quoted him now twice in one day, and uh, wrote the following of pride. He said, according to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. It is pride which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. We see the effects of pride in the lament over Lucifer that comes in Isaiah. You remember he was once an exalted angel, but through pride he fell. Isaiah 14.12, How are you fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How are you cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations? For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol to the lowest depths of the pit. It was pride that caused the devil to fall. And then the devil used pride to cause our first parents, Adam and Eve, to fall. What was it he told them? You shall be as gods. You shall be like God or even better. What he had aspired to, they listened to his voice and they fell. And ever since then, we have been putting ourselves above God, saying we know best, saying to every authority, you're not the boss of me, rebelling instinctively. But who does it hurt? Who does our rebellion generally hurt the most? The answer is ourselves. We're the ones who suffer from our rebellion. John Stott said very truly, pride is your greatest enemy. Humility is your greatest friend. And while we don't think much of, of rebellion today amongst children, the Lord took it very, very seriously. He included it in the Ten Commandments. And more than that, do you know what the punishment for a child who continued to rebel was in the Old Testament. And it was death. Yeah, Exodus 21, 17. And he who curses his father and his mother shall surely be put to death. So be warned also. Know this about yourself. And I, it's been what I've observed as well. The general rule is that a child who refuses to submit himself or herself to their parents will also be a child who will not bow their heart before God that rebellion will tend to continue up the line. They will not bow before Christ. But now let me turn back to parents and talk to, about the duties of children to parents. Or rather, uh, I, I want to, to plead with you kids based on a personal experience. I, I was one of those rebels that I spoke of. And early in my life, uh, I made constant rebellion uh, my, my course. Every day, I, was, I, I went through this awful process of first I acted up in class and I was kicked out into the hallway, then the principal's office, and then I got a detention. One day, my mother actually spotted that I had skipped a detention by the very fact that I came home on time. She knew that her child was not going to do this. Um, being grounded was my normal state. I was kicked out of the Cub Scouts. Parents instructed their children literally not to play with me. And so I spent a lot of my childhood lonely, and I spent a lot of my childhood angry. But you know who I blamed? Everybody else. The entire world is against me. No, what was the problem? I 
was rebellious. I refused to submit to the authorities who were above me. And that's had lingering consequences even in my life to this day. My wife will be able to tell you that after we get above 10, my math skills become, you know, ridiculously small. Why? Because I rebelled against being taught math. Why? Because I hated math. I didn't want to hear it, so I rebelled against its instruction. And it was only as the Lord subdued me that my life improved, and I was able to begin to learn, really. It was only in seminary that I began to love education because my heart had been changed. And what had been stifled, what had been killed within me, my rebellious nature. Now, why do I say this? Why do I bring this up? Because I see it so often in kids today. Their lives are not going well. They're angry. They're depressed. And the source is pride and rebellion. They'll say, it's everybody else, it's my teacher, it's the school, it's my counselors, it's my parents, it's my family. And if everybody was changed, if I could do some sort of family feng shui and, you know, rearrange all the furniture of my life, then I'd be happy. But that's not the case. I've said this many a time, but it's still true. No matter where you go, there you are. You are are the common denominator in all of your problems. And so, what do you need to do? Check your heart. Are you a rebel by nature? Are you rebelling against all of the authority structures? If you are rebelling against all of the authority structures that God has been putting in your life, then you are going to be angry, sad, and lonely. It's always going to be the case. And you are going to always think it's other people until you begin to do that needful self-examination of your own heart and say, have I submitted to the authorities God has put in me? Or am I constantly kicking against the goads? It's an interesting expression, kicking against the goads. An ox goad was a sharpened stick. And the farmer would use it to get the ox moving because he needed the wagon to move. And it was actually in the ox's best interest to to walk and pull the, the cart for the farmer. So he wouldn't end up as oxtail soup later on because it was utterly useless. But the farmer would, would, would prick him, and if he kicked back against it, he was going to hit the what? The sharpened point of the goad, which would hurt him more than the farmer, certainly. But isn't that how so many of us spend our lives? Paul was rebuked for doing that. God had been goading him in the right direction, showing him the truth, and he would said, No! It cannot be the case that these Christians are right and that Jesus really is the Son of God. But he found out to his dismay that God was working on him. And indeed, the Christians were right. And Christ is the Son of God. And he was caused to submit. And his entire life changed after that. And it didn't become easy, obviously. But he knew joy and contentment instead of anger. So, note this. I have noted in my entire life, uh, through my life, that the most unhappy people are inevitably the most rebellious. They really are. Now, I know this. This is not an excuse. I know that only the, the transformative work of the Holy Spirit will make a heart truly obedient. What am I saying, therefore? Submit to Christ. Get that obedient heart that you need so very badly. Let me address quickly parents, though, and say some words to you. This commandment not only obviously governs the the child's responsibilities, but it also governs your responsibilities. We've talked about some of them. Now, when we talk about that, that fathers, 
do not provoke your children to wrath. I think you've got a general idea of what that means, but I want to give you more instruction about it. Uh, when it says, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord, what does that mean? Well, Hodge has some wonderful words of reflection on this. He says this, children are not to be allowed to grow up without care or control. They are to be instructed, disciplined, and admonished so that they be brought to knowledge, self-control, and obedience. The whole process of education is to be religious, not only religious, but Christian. It is the nurture and admonition of the Lord, which is the appointed and the only effectual means of attaining the end of education. Where this means is neglected or any other substituted in its place, the result must be disastrous failure. The moral and religious element of our nature is just as essential and as universal as the intellectual. Religion, therefore, is as necessary to the development of the mind as knowledge. Let me read that again because it's something we've forgotten. Religion, therefore, is as necessary to the development of the mind as knowledge. Have you noticed that as religion has been evacuated from the public square, we've become stupid? I mean, so stupid, we don't even know male from female at this point in time. Biological reality is no longer something that we can apprehend. So we put, I was reading an article, we put tampons in the boys' bathroom. I'm not going to explain why that's stupid, but I think most of the adults here, and those of you who are at least a teen years, already understand that. And the school authorities are getting very upset because the boys keep ripping it off the wall and sticking it in the toilet. Good for them. <laughs> At least they've got some common sense. Even though that's an act of rebellion and technically I should be against it. But <laughs> the point being, without religious instruction about the nature of the universe, we will inevitably cover our eyes and say, I do not see the truth and fall into greater and greater error, greater and greater foolishness. He goes on and says, and as Christianity is the only true religion and God in Christ, the one true God, the only possible means of profitable education is the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Remember that. If you want your children to grow up well-adjusted, and we all do, don't we, and happy and holy and on the right path, then we have to set before them a religious instruction. And your instruction must be grounded in obedience to the Lord. You're acting in his stead. Remember also that kids are going to grow up to be who you are, not who you want them to be. They will follow your pattern that you set before them. If you are godless, they'll be godless. That's just the way of it. It will not do to present yourself as the ultimate authority also in your household. I joked when I said, why should you do this? Because I say so. But how many parents say that to their kids? Because I say so! Well, okay, you've got a certain fifth commandment authority, but ultimately we should do better than that. Because God says so. In his word, let me show you, my son or daughter. This is what saith the Lord. Don't do this. Okay, that's a prohibition. I'm just enforcing his will. Please understand that when you, therefore, are disobeying me, you're disobeying the creator of the universe. And that's always a bad idea. Make that point. Now, the other thing about the way, I've talked about what we instructed the way, and I'll finish on that. Um, it's not always the case, but fathers have a tendency to be too severe. Mothers have a tendency on the other side to be too lenient. If we're going to fall off in our instruction of the kids, that's generally the way that it's going to go. 
So Calvin has some great advice here. He says, kind and liberal treatment has rather a tendency to cherish reverence for their parents and to increase the cheerfulness and activity of their obedience, while a harsh and unkind manner rouses them to obstinacy and destroys their natural affections. But Paul goes on to say, let them be fondly cherished for the Greek word, which is translated bring up unquestionably conveys the idea of gentleness and forbearance. To guard them, however, against the opposite and frequent evil of excessive indulgence, he again draws the rein which had slackened and adds, in the instruction and reproof of the Lord, it is not the will that parents, in the exercise of kindness, shall spare and corrupt their children. Let their conduct toward their children be at once mild and considerate, so as to guide them in the fear of the Lord, and correct them also when they go astray. That age is so apt to become wanton that it requires frequent admonition and restraint. So teach the truths that God has given to you in his word. Teach them on a daily basis and do so with gentleness and kindness, but firmness as well. Remember that you were given to your children to be their instructor, to be the one who nurtures them, who loves them, who shows them kindness and compassion, who sets before them an example of Christ-likeness that they can follow. It should be the case, fathers, that you are able to say, follow me as I follow Christ to your children, and it not be something that would cause them to fall into paroxysms of laughter. It should be the case that we are, in our own small way, imperfectly always, but still trying to model Christ in the home to our kids, to show the kind of the gentleness, but the truth and the strength that Christ showed in his earthly ministry. Do you remember what we started the worship service with? We started with the Shema, and I'll close with the Shema as well. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart, or rather, it's actually following the Shema, sorry. And you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That instruction, that essential instruction, should be something that you are giving to your kids on a regular basis. And why? Not because I say so, but because God does in his word. Let's go before him now. God, our Father, we thank you so much that you have given us guidance in how to raise our kids. Left to ourselves... And judging by our own measure, we'll always go in the wrong direction. But we're thankful that you've given us your objective word, which is inerrant and infallible. Help us, O oh Lord, as fathers, not to exasperate our kids, not to vex them. Let us not be overly severe. Let us, as mothers, not be overly indulgent or vice versa. I pray also, O oh Lord, that you would help us to remember always that the instruction that we give them should be founded firmly upon your word and therefore help us to get it into our hearts so that in the exigencies of life we are able to dispense it when we need to.